Welcome to the Apple Store on Regent Street. Would you please welcome our guest host, Will Gompertz. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's, it's very, very nice to be here. Nice to see so, so many people. I'm, as, uh, as Dan said, I'm Will Gompertz, I'm the arts editor of the BBC and also an author for Penguin. And um, I, I was delighted to have been invited to host this conversation uh, with uh, Stephen Fry, principally around his book, his autobiography, the third part of his memoir, uh, Mool For Me, and also how people interacted with it using digital technology. So a fascinating hour or so ahead of us, I think. But before that, we would like to get our main guests onto stage. So uh, first of all, could you give a very large round of applause for Mr. Stephen Fry? But the excitement... <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> but, but the excitement doesn't end there, of course. We have got more treats in store for you in the shape of the wonderful Chief Executive Officer of Penguin Random House. Please give a very warm round of applause, Tom Weldon. Rather less exciting. Um, <laughs> it was shorter, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Um, welcome, everybody, to uh, the final event in the Your Fry uh, project. Um, at Penguin Random House, as publishers, we believe our purpose is to capture the attention of the world for stories, ideas, and writing that matter. And we're always looking for exciting new ways of doing that. So we were hugely grateful to Stephen uh, when he agreed uh, for this project to take place. And basically, what this project was all about was inviting new digital storytellers from all around the world to t take Stephen's writing as the original source material, as it were, and to develop new, probably digital narratives from it. And this project took place from the end of September all the way through to January. Penguin and Stephen have collaborated on 25 fantastic events uh, in 21 different cities, uh, in 12 different countries around the world. Some of them took place in very traditional settings, like the Bodleian Library uh, in Oxford. Others were in more exotic settings, like the Music Test Fest in Berlin, digital festivals in Beirut, uh, and, and, and uh, New Delhi. And uh, the conversations touched on an extraordinary range of themes, from, from sexuality to addiction to mental illness uh, to, to education. Our biggest thank you tonight is, of course, to Stephen, uh, as I say, for allowing us to... Uh, work in a very creative way uh, with his book. Thank you to Will uh, for, host for introducing uh, uh, the show tonight, uh, to Apple for hosting the event, to the Your Fry panel of experts who have been advisors throughout the project, and uh, to our partners We Transfer, who are showcasing uh, all the creations and have enabled the winners to be here tonight. Our biggest thanks of all, though, go to all our participants. Uh, we have been really, really impressed by the quality and diversity of the submissions. In terms of tonight, we're going to begin with a very short video, uh, and then there's going to be a conversation between Stephen and Will. One more video, and then at the end, Stephen will present the winners. Thank you very much. Stephen Fry here with a question for you. Who has been tasked by Penguin Books with the job of telling the life story of actor, comedian, author, Twitter warrior, stuntman, athlete and lover, Stephen Fry? Take your time. You. Yes. You. No, not you. You. I think about all of you. An even more accurate answer than that would be everyone. We're fascinated by how stories can be interpreted in a myriad ways by individuals all over the world. And where I've spent many hours slaving over a hot word processor to write my own story in the Fry Chronicles and my new memoir, More Fool Me, I think it's time to give someone else a go because frankly, it's hard, time-consuming work. The challenge is simple. Be bold, brave, and innovative in creating your own interpretations of my story. There are no rules. This challenge depends on diversity, imagination. Make whatever you want your fry. 
as my penguin friends have dubbed this project, seeks to explore how the same words, written or spoken, resonate differently across the globe and the limitless creativity that stories can fuel is at the very heart of this Your Fry project. Very good. Um, now, um, so, so I'll chat to Stephen a bit. We're going to have another video. I'll chat to Stephen a bit more. We'll then do all the winners, which will be very exciting. And then we're going to have uh, bring the audience in so you can chat to Stephen as well. That's basically the, the, the format. The first question I've got, Stephen, is, is, is a tough one. Is, uh, are you going to take your coat off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I looked rather cool in my coat. Well, but, uh, coolish, uh, but we're slightly worried you might just bugger off to okay. Belgium or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might take it off then. Go on. There you go. Uh, I'll leave it in a puddle underneath me. <laughs> there it is. Nice and warm in the apples. Well, yeah, it's fine. The, the, uh, um, the second thing I, I'd like to say, and I think on behalf of us all in, in the, the Apple Store, is congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> There's my, uh, my ring. It's very exciting. Um, I'm probably the only person who's ever got married, so I can tell you it's really <laughs> exciting. It's great. It's thrilling. I'm very happy. I mean, it's quite it's a, it was quite an interesting moment. Here we are going to talk about technology, and you, you know, the, the marriage you were outed, so to speak, <laughs> because of technology. Well, not strictly true. Oh. Um, well, the marriage I outed myself using technology, but um, in fact the engagement uh, was, had been of long-standing, and... Um, I went to uh, a registry office and they explained that the announcement had to go up and so somewhere on a small piece of paper in the municipal building in Norwich was my name and the name of my now husband and uh, still feels good yeah, it yeah. Does. yeah. It's great. <laughs> and that was uh, that was picked up somebody saw that and they told the press about that so that was very old school right. but um, when it came marvelously the registrar who was extremely on our side with uh, our desire not to have photographers and journalists at the actual ceremony uh, she brilliantly hid a false put a false date uh, in the computer so that anybody who hacked it or sneakily looked at it who shouldn't would think we were going to be married on the 7th of March. And uh, she didn't tell anybody else what the real date was, so we managed to get married without a single journalist present. Uh, but then, yes, I tweeted a picture of ourselves uh, saying, you know, that we'd gone in as separate people and come out as one. And that sort of put it under our control. It meant that the press would no longer be following us um, uh, because you can't really pretend that the press aren't interested in something, although it seems very vain to try and control the press. If you don't, they will control you. So uh, it's pretty necessary. And, in, in, and that actually, Twitter, for the last seven or eight years that I've been on it, um, it is wonderful to know that I don't have to do certain interviews and profiles um, because I have more followers than the circulation of that newspaper. Which is really, I know it's terrible, but it's very, very good to know. <laughs> Steering towards a spot of megalomania. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, but it's just handy. Did you have a first dance? Um, yes, you know, see me dance, wouldn't have called it a dance exactly, but it was a shuffle. What was the tune? <laughs> I had wanted to choose the, um, a tune written by Al Jolson. It's the only great uh, uh, tune he, he wrote, as far as I know. He had some great hits, of course, like California, Here I Come, and... Uh, uh, um, you know, Sonny and you know, uh, Sonny Boy and, uh, and and so on, but uh, he did write one called "Oh, How We Danced on the Night That We Wed," um, but I couldn't get it on my i i, I uh, performing thing, which might or may not have been an Apple thing, which I <laughs> wouldn't want to suggest that I'm in any way in hock to Apple. It could easily be an Android device, but unfortunately, I, I'm not a total idiot. So, um, no, shush. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it was, I can't actually, uh, oh yes, no, it was Cole Porter. Um, yeah. okay. Very good, thank you. That's that. Yeah. So, um, to your autobiography, or your memoir, whatever you mm. wish to call it, the third in the series, uh, John Humphreys is a very great man at the BBC. He's brilliant at interviewing people. And when I started at the BBC, <laughs> I asked him, you know, what's the, trick of, uh, what's the trick of a good interview? And he says, keep the question short. 
This, this <laughs> well is on, by the way, yeah. Uh, and this is an anecdote more than a question. And, and, I, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, just ask, just start with one word, why, and then build it from there if necessary. Yes, well, Kipling uh, had the, uh, what is it, the five W's and the, and the H, wasn't it? Uh, why, the, what, when, how. Why, what, when, how, where. Yeah, yeah. The, the journalist questions, yeah. So, so the question on, on, on the third memoir is, is why? It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and short. <laughs> Very short. Contractual obligation is one reason, of course. Um, but also, <laughs> pride. Uh, um, I, I got so far um, with, with one book and then a second. They'd taken me up to a, uh, a kind of real hinge in my life. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to press on with this, even though it's pretty... It's an unfortunate period of my life in many ways. It's... Well... Very successful in worldly terms. I was doing lots of films and television and, uh, and, and writing and so on. But also in social and personal terms, it was pretty much a disaster. I was alone and lonely, and, um, and I had uh, taken to regular supply of, um, of cocaine, uh, which, you of talk course... talk about that quite explicitly. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen the point of writing a, a memoir which isn't honest, um, at least as honest as one can make it without traducing other people who's, you know, it's not my business too much to mention other people um, uh, or to destroy their reputations or indeed to just mention them in, in any way if they don't want to be. So it's really I'm the only one I can attack. I'm the only one I can assault and, uh, and describe uh, and dissect. Um, even if I can't do it necessarily accurately, I can always say, I think anybody who's ever tried to write an autobiography, you can always say what happened, but you can very rarely say why. It's, uh, the spectator sees more of the game. I think my friends and family probably know better than I do why I behaved in certain ways, or, um, or and certainly the effect of it. And all I can do is remember what I did, but it's very hard to remember why. I mean, I, the other really difficult thing I would imagine is is how to self-edit, mm. what to put in, what to put, not to put in. Now you said you obviously you don't you don't want to put stuff in there which is going to put other people in an awkward position. Mm. But you also have to make a decision what you, you yourself decide to put in and what you decide to not put in, other than, I suppose, you want to entertain people. What, what, is, what is the criteria for you? Um, I suppose, uh, in the end, the criterion I've always had, and it's one that I'm not necessarily proud of, uh, because it stops me ever being an artist or a person of great authenticity, um, is, is uh, what's entertaining. Yeah. I am primarily an entertainer, and I admire artists more than almost any other type of human being. Um, and the ones I know, and I think I mentioned this in the book, the ones I know have a strength of character and of a directness, mm. um, which is, to me, very awe-inspiring, very impressive, and I can never be that brave. So I think the criterion is that. It is what is, I hope, entertaining. If it becomes dull or it becomes disgusting um, and uh, turns into something that uh, repels people rather than entrances them, then I'm not really interested in conveying it. Now, you, you, you spend a lot of time in, in the public eye, mm. both uh, you know, as a writer, presenter, comedian, actor, all, all of the above. It strikes me writing a memoir make, is, is partic makes one particularly vulnerable, mm. that, that um, people aren't just criticising the work of art, they're criticising the person. Yeah, yeah. The person they don't necessarily know, um, but they or think you, they know. You've given them liberty to make a decision, yeah. yeah. I've, I've projected a personality that people imagine that they know, and they can judge me rightly according to that, and we all do it. Uh, even if you here don't do it to me, you probably do it to Anne Whittacombe or, um, you know, or David Cameron or something like that, people you may not have met, but you have a strong view of. And you might go, yeah, every time they appear on television. Or you might go, wow, God, I love them. And in both cases, it's, it's a prejudgment. It is prejudice in its literal sense. And we all are guilty of prejudice. And it's one of the natures of, uh, of celebrities that we, we prejudge celebrities according to our own taste. Um, and it's either revulsion or um, disgust or something similar or dislike or of course it can be indifference um, or, or it can be absolute love hero worship um, and in all cases it's it, it's not necessarily right um, but it speaks to something we need I need heroes so there are people I worship and they can be as 
as distinct and different as, I don't know, Martina Navratilova and, uh, um, um, uh, Brian, I don't know, um, Richard Feynman, say, the scientists who are dead. I, I can worship them. I don't, I mean, I know a bit about their lives, and for all I know, I wouldn't really like them that much if I knew them well. I, I'm too late to know Richard Feynman well, but I've, I've met Martina Navratilova. Um, but I don't really want to know any better because there's a s certain things about her that I just find utterly admirable. And it's partly, I think, that, that, that she's so different from me. She doesn't care what, doesn't seem to care what people think of her. I have a terrible fault in how much I care about what people think of me. It's disastrous. Um, and I really try and do something about it. And my friends say, oh, please, come on, Stephen. It's, why are you so upset about this? They're just, who is it? They've just said this about you. Why should you care? And I think, yeah, no, I shouldn't care. But I want everybody to love me. Everybody <laughs> in the world. It's preposterous. It's so silly. Um, that, that is setting yourself up to fail. It to is, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but with that in mind, why do more and more memoirs? Because you, you, you are asking for it, are you not? Yeah. And... and I, maybe it is a psychological desire to be spanked in public. Um, all I can say is that I do desire, when, when I have a, a, a metaphorical these days pen in my hand, a, you know, a keyboard under my fingers, I, I feel a connection to all writers, all, whether it's Grub Street or whether it is, you know, the highest garrets of, uh, um, of, of, the, of the finest, uh, you know, writers uh, in the world, you know, the, the, the greatest novelists, greatest, you know, essayists, whether it's Montaigne in his tower or, or um, you know, um, whether it's Balzac in his, his scribbling away or whoever it might be, I feel connected to them, not necessarily in talent, but in that there is a sacred duty when you're a writer, which is to try and write the truth as you see it, just as a painter looks out of the window, looks up from his easel, um, looks across at the subject he's painting or she's painting, and is struggling all the time to uh, to find the way to represent the truth uh, of what they see, and and it's similar with a with with writing. The only t difficulty, especially with a book, because you get one out in a year or whatever it is, and then you wait a little bit. Is, and I can say this of, of your fry uh, um, um, and, and its you know two books is that of the first one the Fry Chronicles um, I think I was in a really reasonably happy state when I wrote it in your fry I was in a, I was in a, what can only be described as a mixed state <laughs> and I know that if I were to write about that period of my life now and it's not much later I would have written a completely different book. I could even do that, which would be asking a bit much of the public to lash out on a, on a similar book, uh, or at least on a book covering what, what a similar would be time different? frame. I think it would be less. I think it. I think it would pay less attention to the cocaine, or at least it, the attention it paid to it would be more, more self-forgiving, less self-lacerating. It would just lay it on with less of a trowel, if you so lighter being, touch. A lighter touch, exactly. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Um, which doesn't mean I regret the way I, it was written, because um, when you, it's a, <laughs> it's a bit like what what they say of period movies, um, is that any period movie tells you an enormous amount about the period in which it was made, not about the period in which it is set. So if you watch Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby, for example, it tells you everything about this period of the, of the noughties. Everything, you just look at it, every frame of it is from that period, more or less our age now. If you look at the, um, if you look at the, 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 the Robert Redford one with uh, uh, Mia Farrow, it says it's just so early 80s, it's ridiculous. All of them use the right makeup, the flappers, the music, everything to try and uh, create their age, but they, they, they just tell you about the age in which they're made. Um, only th and the book, which was written in the age which it was set, tells you everything about its age and about our age because it's such an extraordinary work of art. Um, but it's true of my book as well, is that I read the book, I, all I can think of is not the period that it's describing, but the period in which I wrote. And part of that period, of course, is this thing which we're all living through at the moment, this digital revolution. Mm. And you made that part of your book, i.e. you asked people, in a way I suppose which is, is analogous to sort of fan fiction, you asked your readers to respond and create their own stories yes. off the back of that. How did, how did that process feel? Well it was fascinating and when, when Penguin asked if I was uh, up for this, um, I first had to just find out exactly 
what kind of thing they had in mind because it's quite a difficult it's a, a the whole idea of your fry is a bit like trying to 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 clutch a salmon the the harder you grasp the further it flies away because it's it's not you know, it, it is. It's not just oh, let's make it multimedia. It's you know, it's it's sort of more subtle than that. It is asking for an, an artistic approach towards the material. It's to uh, in, in in digital language, it's there. The content is there, and it's there in two forms: text, uh, which can be manipulated endlessly, as we know these days, in all kinds of ways, um, and uh, a sound file, uh, because I I did the 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 audiobook for both of these. Um, and I was very excited because uh, I, I think it's wonderful to send out to creative people uh, around the world, and Tom mentioned, you know, Beirut and New Delhi as well as Ukraine and, uh, and, and, and Paris and Berlin and, and obviously uh, uh, here in Britain where there's such extraordinary talent in Scotland and England, Wales and indeed Northern Ireland, um, and Ireland for that matter. Uh, I, what I wanted to see... <laughs> sorry, you should thinking, work for the BBC, know, Stephen. You'd be very good. Being so correct about it all. Uh, <laughs> but um, what it is, when you sit down and write a book, you engage all of your emotions and all of your senses. You try and, uh, you try and evoke uh, all the senses of smell and taste, and uh, you, you try and evoke music and uh, images and so on, all using text. And that's the beauty of a book, is that by reading the text, the text comes alive in your head, and you see pictures, and you smell smells, and you feel feelings, and you hear noises, and you are transported into the world that the writer is uh, attempting to evoke. And, and so that's very good, and it's not that one wants to move away from that or say that that's old-fashioned and that we have to have a new, f a new form of storytelling. Narratives um, will always have uh, new media behind them, of course. But what was great was finding these two staples, audio and text, and using the background of the various uh, uh, potentials like the web, of course, and, and other such things, and touch technologies and all kinds of other things to, uh, to bring it all alive. And above all, and you'll see this when, when we mention those who, who've, uh, who've most excited us, uh, the panel, including you, Will, so you'll know them, um, uh, leavened by a truly great human quality, which is wit. Um, and some of them are genuinely very funny, and that means they've been taken seriously because uh, um, people without a sense of humour just don't take the world seriously enough. That's as Oscar <coughs> pointed out. He did. <laughs> um, we should have a, have a look at some before yeah. before we do that. Uh, does it has anybody in the, did anybody in the audience contribute to the the U for I project? Yeah, got that one, two, three. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 very yeah. good. Was it was it fun? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, what's quite interesting about the concept is that the, the book is a starting point, not an end point. Yes, that, I suppose that's completely. Yeah, very well. Put. Okay, can we can we have a look at some of the some of the submissions, please? have any shape that we want but to do that we've got to take the internet or the web out of the screen and start to put it in the world around us and the technology to do that is here and now but then a disaster too horrible to contemplate prized two boys apart and i lived for one thing and one thing only flesh but i'm too old a dog to be taught to bark new tunes and so it began from Macintoshes came Rolos, Caramac and Toffee Crisp. This madness. What are you doing? Why are you behaving like that? Who do you think you're fooling? Stop it. Don't do that. Look out! Firstly, what can I do with this program? And it turns out you can do quite a lot in a short space of time. But also, um, what can I do with text? What can I do with the sounds of words? And how can I manipulate their meaning? <laughs> I've been able to show other people what it's like to read as a dyslexic through adapting text and changing the colour. And I wanted to do the same for bipolar. But last night I felt almost, almost possessed. Zest. I texted everyone I knew furiously. 
The obvious question, Stephen, is in general terms, what was your reaction to what you saw? I, I was astonished by how varied and how intelligent and, as I said, witty um, and totally unpredictable all the, all the entries were that I looked it's, at. It's just that you, you said beforehand that in a way when you're writing a memoir, it, actually other people are better judges mm. and can contribute more. Now here's an example of people being able to do just that. What did people add, say, think, do? which gave you another view of yourself. Well, it's interesting. They concentrated on four elements that Tom mentioned, actually. Mental health, sexuality, um, education, uh, and... Um, there's got to be another one, isn't there? Addiction, thank you. Damn, I wanted to forget that one. I was cured. Then you said addiction. Oh, damn. And addiction, yeah. Um, <laughs> and th they used... Parts of, parts of the text, parts of my voice that I hadn't realized were so relevant to, to those areas. Um, and they, they created a sort of emotional rhythm in, uh, across the different pieces that surprised me enormously uh, and delighted me. What, and what do you think of technology as a creative enabler, both from a good perspective and maybe from a negative perspective? Well, I think um, I've enormous faith in human beings' desire and appetite for knowledge and to communicate knowledge and to communicate knowledge and experience artistically, to create art, if you like. And uh, new technology will come along. Uh, um, the, um, the obvious example that everybody naturally chooses is in 1450 when... Uh, Gutenberg um, printed his first Bible. Um, by 1500, only 50 years later, uh, th there was something like 50 million printed books in Europe, uh, which, given the population and the mechanical printing time, um, is astounding. It is well equivalent of the explosion in, in, the, uh, in the web uh, after 94 and, uh, and uh, Tim Berners-Lee's great uh, invention was rolled out across the world. I think there will always be those who are very doubtful and who think that the human brain can't cope. Mm. But I would say this about the human brain. Um, it, it is more miraculous than even the person who most thinks it miraculous can claim. I was thinking only the other day, and I'd been in the country, and I was standing in a field uh, in Norfolk, and there were huge skies, and it was calm. And I was looking at a copse of a little wood, and, and my eye could instantly pick up if a, if a little little um, fret of wind turned a leaf, and you know, saw it silver, the silver reverse of the leaf, or a, or a bird rocketed out of the out of the wood. Of course, my whole brain was totally programmed to respond to these things in, in the countryside, a thing that might be possible food or a thing that might possibly want to eat me. That's, that's what we're programmed. And that's natural. Okay, that's the human brain, that we understand that. But three hours later, I was standing in Oxford Street and there were thousands and thousands of people coming at me in colours that just were completely unpredictable. A hundred years ago, they would never seen such colours that people could wear. And I was on a phone talking to someone who was miles and miles away and my brain was perfectly capable of processing everything. I didn't even know I was processing this. It was only when I stopped and compared what I'd, what I'd experienced in the Norfolk countryside. That's how astonishing our brain is. So when the monks said in 1460 that the human memory is going to be destroyed by printing, we no longer will people have to know anything. They can look it up in a book and that will destroy the human brain. Well, we laugh because what a ridiculous thing to say. We know that, in fact, the human memory was immeasurably enhanced by the arrival of printing. And so it is with the digital world. People have said, well, now there's Wikipedia. People won't know anything because they'll just look it up. They know far more than they've ever known, ever. It's fantastic. We have more knowledge at our fingertips than Napoleon had in libraries in Sanskrit, anywhere, anywhere he had. 
um, more than Alexander the Great, more than uh, Louis the Louis, Louis the Fourteenth, more than any great monarch you can think of, or any great leader. But in in a, in a way, Stephen, it's, it's not the the, the, the mir miraculous nature of the human brain isn't its ability to consume information. It's what it does with it. Is mm, it absolutely. It's, it's the yeah. ability to imagine. To process it. And, and realize yeah. those imaginations, to be yeah. creative. Absolutely. Absolutely right. I was merely just saying that as a sort of foretaste of, of really just to remember how remarkable our brains are and remember how you know, they're not vulnerable to some sort of strange destruction by the nature of, of, of the digital world or any more than they were by television. If you remember all those people, those of us who are old enough to remember how television was going to soften the brain, uh, video games were going to soften the brain, uh, and now uh, the online world and spending your time with social networking and so on is going to soften the brain. It doesn't, it sharpens it. It may be very tedious if people do it over the, over the table when you're trying to have a dinner party or something. It's very annoying. You want to slap people. Put it away! <laughs> or you would want to drop it into the washing up sink and see their faces. Um, oh, talking of revenge, the speakers here are fantastic. I'm going to take them home and that'll show my neighbour who's fucking boss. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry, weren't they good? Um, so, but yes, um, there was a time, um, um, Douglas Adams, who is always the ghost at these uh, feasts, which, which talk about the future and the nature of, uh, of the digital world. I remember him years and years and years ago saying that he had had, which he'd sort of inherited from his father, a book called The Boy's Wonder Book of Science. And The Boy's Wonder Book of Science was uh, written in the late 30s, around the time they'd come up with the DC motor, this electric motor. And um, it was a miracle, it was a wonderful thing. And it meant you could plug a motor into the wall and it could power things rather than having to uh, use a, you know, a, a, an internal combustion engine to power the, the, the motor or steam. Um, it could just go off the, off the mains. And it showed a house of the 19, late 1950s, early 60s, which they imagined. Uh, which was sort of cut away and it had a huge electric motor in the attic and wheels and belts going off it and it was powering everything, washing machines, uh, um, phonographs, you know, gramophones, uh, it was, everything was being powered by this electric motor and basically what the article was saying is we're all going to have to be electric motor literate. Yeah. What it didn't see was that there, there would be electric motors in washing machines, in gramophones, in uh, cassette recorders, in whatever. Everything then had tiny, tiny little electric motors. We never think about them. We don't have to be electric motor literate. And Douglas's point was it's the same with this idea of computer literacy. You don't have to be computer literate. Um, uh, because the computer just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And we think of the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, as it's sometimes called. Um, uh, we just are allowed to get on with it. And perhaps a better image. Um, in terms of creativity, is driving. Uh, it, it used to be, in the days of drive motor, early motoring, you used to have to know how a car worked. You really did. You'd, you, every 10 miles or so, you'd have to get under it and tweak the magneto and uh, adjust the carburation and all this kind of thing, and, and then off you go again, and then you'd crank it up. And that's how computers still are, to some extent. We're still in the early days of motoring with computers. Um, but we're more and more capable now of driving without really knowing how computers work. We don't have to adjust the memory stack. We don't have to suddenly write a piece of a patch in machine code in order to, to mend something. It, it, you know, we may rely on others to do that in, in, in system updates or whatever, but essentially all we have to do is drive. And once you drive with minimum kind of interference and minimum bother, once you drive in terms of sound and vision, which we mostly can now, and in terms of editing, and, uh, uh, which we, we, so we visually process, we audially pro process, uh, and we text process, um, there, there is, there's very little to limit our, our imaginations. But the most important thing, I think, is that you have to be a consumer in order to be a provider. Um, uh, if you want to know how to write a play, it's essential you go to the theatre. It's absolutely pointless not, not going to the theatre. If you want to be a novelist, you, don't, you, don't, you can't be unaware of other novelists. It makes no sense. Um, it, it's almost impossible that you're going to be a great novelist unless you've read other great novelists. It, not because you copy them, but because you get some sense of the, the terrain that you want to be in. So it's really important to enjoy the works of others, I think. Last question before we, mm. we, we do the, the, the finalists. Uh, again, a sort of a, a creativity stroke tech question. What, what's your view on copyright? 
Well, I did a, uh, uh, an Apple event, an, an uh, iTunes event at the Roundhouse some years ago, in which I said sort of reasonably firmly and got some stick for it, <laughs> especially amongst my own uh, fellow uh, performers. Um, I said, look, <laughs> with all this stuff around, we have to we have to realize that, yes, systematic abuse of copyright is a very bad thing for gain, but, and this was happening at the time, but to, 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 to jump on students and young people who are doing compilation tapes, not, not providing peer-to-peer -peer networks, which really do take the piss out of copyright, but just individuals. I said, well, you could have done that to me. When I was 16, I would borrow people's records and I would do a cassette compilation. I bet you did. Yeah. Who didn't? We stole music. We were pirates. We should have been imprisoned. Well, do you know what? The moment I was old enough and had enough money to buy things, I bought them. But if I'd been threatened with imprisonment, and if I'd had friends who'd been imprisoned for doing compilation tapes, I would have thought, fuck you, music industry. You're arseholes. You really are arseholes. You're picking on young individual people who love music. And that's wrong. You shouldn't. Let them. Let them make compilations and mixes from their friends' stuff. Let them, let them rip CDs and swap it occasionally amongst their friends. As long as they're not making money off it. As long as you know, they're not really making money off it. You know that when they're older, they will be buyers. They will be your best customers. And they will like you, and they will believe in music, and they'll believe in downloading music properly. But uh, so, so just don't attack the, you know, the, 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 the citizens of tomorrow who will be, who will be decent. That's my Good. idea. Well, on, the, on that passionate note, <laughs> Stephen, uh, let's have a look at the, uh, the four shortlisted winners. Mm. Are they winners um, of the people who, who took your copyright and had fun yes, with it? Yes, indeed. And we're very welcome to it. So let's have a look. Yeah, should, are we doing them one by one? Uh, so, well, the number one is, is uh, not in order of number one or number one. Just the first one we're showing is from Michael Shorter, and it's called A Touch of Fry. Note the word touch. What shape is the internet? The internet has one shape. It's rectangular. Whether it's a tablet, a phone, or a laptop. I don't think, as a designer and as a technologist, I don't think that's very exciting. I think we could have uh, any shape that we want. But to do that, we've got to take the internet, or the web, out of the screen and start to put it in the world around us. And the technology to do that is here and now. So we can touch different it bits of Stephen but the other program and it will tell different stories that are in this the book. There is a famous eat. Fry and Laurie seemed sometimes to be a desk. <clears throat> Memoir, the act of literary remembering, for me, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like that? Who do you think you're back at the Savoy Hotel? Great. Bravo. <laughs> that could get quite filthy quite quickly. <laughs> it's wonderful. I, I don't know about you. I'm just stunned by the um, uh, the sort of screen printing aspect of it. This, the you know, soldering would be one thing, and I go, gosh, soldering—that's really geeky and that's so impressive. But, 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 you know, to use this sort of black gunk um, uh, as a circuit. I, uh, it was beautiful, apart from anything else, and so flat. And anyway, charming and wonderful. So let's have a look uh, at the second one, which is uh, called Map Fry, and it's, uh, they can't sadly be here. It's by Evgenia Shriochenkova and uh, Mikhail Meleshkin. I hope I pronounced those right. <laughs> and here they are from, from the Ukraine. I really must stop saying sorry. It doesn't make things any better or worse. If only I had it in me to be all fierce, fearless and forthright, instead of forever sprinkling my discourse with pitiful retractions, apologies and prevarications, it's one of the reasons I could never have been an artist, either of a literary or any other kind. All the true artists I know are uninterested in the opinion of the world and wholly unconcerned with self-explanation. Mm, that's a real beauty to play with, that one. Um, uh, absolutely wonderful. You can, you can carry on reading uh, there. Whoop, it's gone. Um, uh, really stunning. It just, everything just seamlessly and beautifully connects. Uh, 
So th whatever piece of text you, you, you've chosen, you, you just chase this beautiful little flowing thing that goes all the way through, through the web. And uh, so one idea, it's, it's like um, um, Ignace Fetchers, you know, uh, St. Elmo's Fire, you know, which is little pockets of methane in a marsh. And, and w if one of them gets lit, then another one gets lit. And the, the illusion is of a, of a trace going all the way uh, along. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the next one is called Speaking Fry, and I think you'll find it amusing. It's by Paul Hudson. As I like to say, almost all the time, I sat there writing bloody-minded poetry about popcorn. I can't but feel that my mysterious invisible friends couldn't see the legendary curly-whirly that I'd been denied. <laughs> I'm very, very glad they didn't choose the slightly ruder ones. That are, uh, but there you see there's a, there's a sort of like a, what you might call a database of, of phrases that, that uh, were regarded as being signature phrases or something similar. Um, and they were chosen so quickly you may not have seen the whole list of them because there's a, a sort of guess-ahead thing. So as you type, um, a shorter number uh, is available for you to choose from um, because you've chosen the word could or something. So all the ones with the word could or couldn't in it uh, are chosen. Anyway, it's very, very quickly learned. And we're making, obviously, as you can see from its uh, user interface, we make a very natural uh, iOS uh, app. Um, uh, anyway, and so the fourth we're going to have a look at is the Book of Bipolarity by Sarah Weigel. My response to the brief is a book that allows the reader to get inside Stephen Fry's head by creating a reading experience that simulates having bipolar disorder. I've been able to show other people what it's like to read as a dyslexic through adapting text and changing the colour, and I wanted to do the same for bipolar. I've taken the text from Awful Me and worked with colour and interactivity to represent Stephen's mood at the time he's writing about, adding an extra layer of depth to the autobiography. Then, in the manic phase, the text becomes vivid, colourful and appears almost to move, showing the excitement, beauty and rush experienced at this time. The book is also an interactive piece, inspired by Stephen's joint love of the printed word and new technologies. At the most severe point in the depression phase, the text becomes so withdrawn that it disappears completely. Unable to continue, the reader is forced to rely on the voice of a narrator to guide them through the story until they reach a more positive mental state. What are you doing? Why are you behaving like that? Who do you think you're fooling? Stop it! Don't do that! Look out! Books, too, can take the form of the dance. Wonderful. Did she get that right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, uh, it's extraordinary, as you said in that piece, to try and get in my head. It's an odd thought that people try and get in your head, but then that's what writers are asking people to do, in, and, and this project more than any other, of course, and I think you did it superbly. Um, you must work next on the thing my friend uh, William Goldman, the screenwriter, has always said, it's a disgrace that there's no irony font. Um, and it's desperately needed in Twitter, if you can do anything. But unfortunately, it needs going to ASCII, I think, doesn't it, who control the, um, uh, you know, the, the assignation of characters in, uh, in standard text is all done by ASCII. Um, and so we need them desperately, because otherwise there's going to be a murder on the basis of a misplaced piece of irony. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things you do, acting, uh, um, presenting, writing, comedy... Which one, if you, had, if you could only do one? Well, I think writing is the most satisfying. I mean, you come off stage after a, um, uh, some of, something that the audience has liked, and it's a nice feeling. It's definitely a quite high, but there's always something that... I don't know, it's 
there's an embarrassment because there are other people there. But writing, the very bad thing about it is that it's lonely. But the very good thing is that when you've had a good day at the desk, this, and you're stretching and hoping that your back hasn't ruined, and uh, you feel so wonderful. It's fantastic. It's the best feeling in the world. Uh, I saw you in Twelfth Night, Stephen, uh, and you were magnificent. I really thank you. hope you don't drop that. Right, oh, who, who would um, um, like to ask Stephen Fry a question? He's all yours for the next ten minutes or so. We've got microphones. There's no need to be shy. He's not remotely scary. No, they're not shy. They're just girding up their loins. <laughs> Somebody wave their hand and then a, a gramophone will come to them. There's a guy there, yeah. And, yeah. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Um, just a quick question. Are you conscious with your writing now around the various different mediums that are available? Or would you adapt afterwards, for example, with audio or with what we see in this evening? That's a good question. I do know whenever I write a book that uh, I'm going to have to do the audio book for it. But that, I, I, I like that fact. And I have to say, ever since, since I started writing, I have always... I've always felt the sound of words and the rhythm of them to be very important. And um, so, I, yes, I can remember my first novel, The Liar, I can remember very clearly standing up with printout and, and, and saying whole pages, uh, uh, not even knowing I would do an audiobook really then. Um, so there is a, a strong feeling of the sound. Um, as for other things, no, I hadn't really imagined. It was really with the, the Fry Chronicles that it, it all kicked off in terms of multimedia in quite that way. And I remember Penguin were very pleased because it was the first book that was number one as a hardback, as a, an app, as an audio book, um, as there were two other categories, I can't even remember what they were, um, but there were four, five categories in which it was in which it was in the market and, and doing well, which was very pleasing. But I think you know people will always want something in their lap to read, um, and I think people now really more than ever as well like to to walk with a book or drive with a book or iron or sit in a bath, you know, with, with an audio book as well. I think those two go together very well. Do, do, you, do you prefer the printed page to read from, or do you prefer a, an iPad or a Kindle or whatever it might be? I'm, I'm happy with both. At home, it's nearly always the printed word, but when traveling, simply, um, you know, e-book is, is well-named. Uh, uh, ele electrons, as we, as we remember from school, ha have... Um, minus charge and, and, and uh, whatever spin, <laughs> but, but they have no mass. Yeah. Or at least, their mass is tiny. It is, I believe, the mass of electrons that is part of the big quest for the Higgs boson, so we might, or the field of it. We mustn't claim there's no mass. But essentially, according to any machine any of us have got, they've got no mass. What I'm really saying is shove an iPad with no books on it on the scale, and it weighs X shove an iPad with a thousand books on a scale and it weighs X. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you've, any of us who've tried to carry more than three books in our luggage uh, around the world will, will know how much real atomic books weigh. And it was Nicholas Negroponte's book, Being Digital, mm. that really un unwrapped that whole thing about living in, 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 an, in an atomic molecular world where things are made of stuff. Yeah. Um, they're made of iron and paper and wood and whatever else it is, or an electronic world where they are made of nothing nothing palpable that need warriors. Do you think the experience is the same, though? No, I don't, exactly. But on the other hand, I think, again, it's part of the human brain's brilliance, is that we can sit on an aeroplane with an iPad or a Kindle or whatever the, of choice, um, and very quickly, if the book's any good, we're sunk into the book, and it's, it stops mattering. It really does. I think it would only matter enormously in a book that isn't very good. I mean, you know, there are those who would say you couldn't read... Um, you, you have to read uh, Ulysses in the Bodley Head edition, you know, otherwise it's just not the same. Well, yeah, but frankly, if you've got no other option but the Penguin edition or some other edition, it's still the same great novel. It's not going to, it's not going to you know, fail to deliver. Who's read Ulysses? The Bodley Head edition, apparently, is the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. It yeah. is. Oh, no, or no. Jane Austen in the Oxford edition, where they have the extra little. The, they have the first word of the next page on the, uh, at the foot. Uh, you see, that's a lovely no. edition yeah. on Oxford India paper. It's beautiful. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, another question, please. Hi. Um, I wanted to know, were you ever apprehensive of kind of letting 
like other people manipulate your own words in this kind of form or was it more of exciting kind of well aspect? you're sitting next to my editor <laughs> she does nothing but manipulate my words no she she's extremely good <laughs> um no, I was very excited about the idea of people manipulating my words because I knew that the books would still exist in, in, in whatever forms, I, I, the e-book and, the, um, uh, and the, you know, the hardback and pa uh, the paperback yet to come, of course. Um, but it was very exciting to have the possibility of people you know, putting in different order and, and, and you know, using the rhythm of one phrase and repeating it and repeating it like a drum which kind of changes the meaning of, of certain bits around it. I think all that's terribly exciting. It's a bit like digging up a garden or something, except the original garden will always exist. So I was thrilled by it. I want to ask a you fryer a question. Can we get, can we get a microphone to this nice lady in, in the middle here? Oh, yeah. Just that. Yeah. Is it, a you fryer, fryer. nervous you fryer. Does she mind? No, it should be fine. Well, I didn't have any questions. Uh, no, but I've got a question for you. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, wh why did you want to respond to the, the you fry idea? Oh, well, I'm, I like Stephen so much. And oh. <laughs> that's a good start. Oh, thank <laughs> yeah, you. That's why. Yeah, well, it was very much fun to make and because it was a good practice to use Photoshop and then I like you, so that's why. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's very nice. Can I tell you that the lady flew from Finland yesterday and fl is flying back because of you? Oh my goodness, are you Johanna Animator? Yes. Hey! Fantastic. Yay. And nice, yeah. thank you very much. It's lovely to see you again. <laughs> lovely to see you again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, we've got a swomi. Um. Right, sorry. No, no, another question. On a, on a totally a different. Uh, oh, no, oh, no, oh, yeah. oh, the Finnish have got the microphone, that's yeah. that. <laughs> I'm not going to give it up now. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, congratulations on your on your recent wedding. Thank I you. was just thinking whether you will be starting a family. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's peeping into volume two. Uh, <laughs> volume one, the marriage is is still still you know well I hope it'll never close. But um, yeah, volume two, the, the little family, uh, the the patter of tiny feet. Um, I, I, you just um, come back to me on that one. <laughs> that, that was a good question. Yeah. Um, this gentleman over here. Hello. Uh, I would never uh, forgive if myself if I wouldn't ask anything. So I recently read about your journey through the America on your cab. Yeah. So uh, are you going to do anything else? Uh, I mean, something similar in some other big country like, I don't know, Russia or I, I would love to do it in Russia. I am doing it. Uh, I'm in the middle of doing another series of, uh, as you say, in America was going around in a, in a cab. Uh, um, this is going around Central America. Uh, all the countries of Central America, there are eight. You will now all recite to me the eight countries of Central America. No, don't worry. <laughs> I can tell you what they are. I wouldn't have been able to recite them all exactly either. I would have missed one out or got one wrong. But anyway, Mexico, although that is technically North America, um, and we filmed in Mexico before Christmas, and I'm driving a school bus, one of those big yellow American school buses. Um, it's not as random as it sounds because it's American and we're in Mexico and other countries. Uh, it, it, they are very, very common as a site throughout Central America. They're known as chicken buses um, because you often see on them you know, chickens running around and goats tethered to the seat and little old ladies uh, in, in black. Um, and, and they are a common way of getting around, so they seemed a, a good idea. So we're driving that, and uh, as of late next month, we start in Belize, um, and the countries are in order, sort of going that way down to the border with Colombia, uh, which is obviously South America. We, we are Mexico, and then um, Belize, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama, and we finish in Panama. And we weren't allowed, I wasn't allowed to use any social media of any kind by the underwriters, the insurance people. Uh, nor, were big, nor were we allowed to drive at night. Uh, kidnapping, well, <laughs> is the big issue there. Um, Honduras is the murder capital of the world, uh, so that's going to be exciting. Uh, Guatemala City is, I think, the third most dangerous city on earth. So, phew, nothing. It's not the most dangerous or even the second most. Um, 
Costa Rica, on the other hand, is the happiest country on earth, uh, according to the United Nations. It has no army. It's a blissful place. And yet it, it borders places that are very, very dangerous. It's most odd. But they all, you know, have incredible culture, food, history. I mean, going, obviously, Belize and Mexico have the Mayan civilizations, the Aztec civilizations, and many, many others uh, who left incredible records. And, and they have phenomenal food, drink, uh, music, culture. Um, it, it, it's very exciting. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Do you, do you speak Spanish? I, I can get by. See, mm. si. si. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about that? Not Clearly, bad. you do. Si. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, not the, the, this gentleman here. I think well, a microphone's coming along to you. You'll be lucky if you get past the fins, to be honest. But thank you, um, Stephen. You've achieved and created a lot yourself. I was wondering, do you feel that people? Uh, like yourself and people like you have a role to inspire others in new areas or not new areas? It, it's an interesting question. On the one hand, I wouldn't want to be so um, cocky as to assume that one has uh, anything to teach uh, people. On, on the other, yes, I, I, you know, I, it saddens me to think that not everyone is kind of encouraged to, to believe in their own creativity or that the, uh, their contribution, you know, which is endless that humans can make. Um, I, I've, I've often thought that computers can provide a, a fantastic opportunity to educate, not in the way we have it, but through developments in AI and in artificial intelligence. And, and the, the model I've set up in my head is of a, of a smart computer, not an expert system to use AI language, but, 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 but uh, um, imagine, for example, as a student uh, who's going to be tested. And this test is the equivalent of what we might call an A-level or a degree exam or anything in between or anything earlier. These are things that really mark people out for life sometimes. They're incredibly important and can destroy people's futures if they get it wrong. And a lot of us believe, I think, that exams seem to be designed to show what people don't know to humiliate them, to leave, you know. Uh, and it's, uh, that's not what an exam should be. And I think, so imagine a computer that you can go up to, and the computer comes up with an almost random word. Let's say the word is coffee. Now, you can, once you're confident about the way these things work, let's suppose you're interested in 17th century history. You can talk about coffee shops, the first coffee shops. Charles II closed them down, right, right around here, up in Covent Garden, places like that, because they were, as he saw it, places for sedition and politics. So you could talk about coffee shops and coffee as a, in that sense. Or if you're a scientist, you could talk about the emulsification and the, the, you know, the making of the drink and, and how it's done. If you're interested in geopolitics, you can talk about monocultures and the crops and so on, and the fair trade or lack of it, and you can talk about the Im imperial history of coffee. Um, uh, if you're a publisher, you can talk about coffee table books and, and what, what they stand for and what they mean. Uh, you can talk about the rise of the uh, Starbucks. You know, you just, you can, all of you can think on the top of your heads. And basically, that means you go to the computer and you show off everything you know about coffee. Uh, and you avoid, the, say, the scientific stuff if you're not very scientific about it. Um, uh, and you go right into the social side of it if you want to talk about baristas and, and the phenomenon of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of frothy coffee in, in, in the modern age as opposed to frothy coffee in the 1950s with the bars in Soho and so on. Um, so that would allow people to show so much of what they knew and what they were enthusiastic about. And if they didn't like coffee, they could just press a button and it would go and, and another word come up, would come up. It could be polo. And they could talk about the mint. They could talk about the game. You know, they could talk about the Volkswagen car. It, it's just that it, they would, and the, the computer would know enough to be able to say, wow, it has cleaned out my memories. It, it's, you know, this person has just ticked every box as far as this area is concerned and, and would be able to, to encourage. The trouble is you can't get an individual teacher to be able to do all that. So I think that would be a, a marvellous thing. And I'm sure it won't be that far away. So if anybody's in any doubt, Stephen's next book is going to be about coffee. <laughs> um, uh, we've got time maybe for, for... We'll take these two questions, then we, 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 I'm afraid we ought to wrap. Um, so these two gentlemen at the front. Um, hi, yes. Expanding on what you've just said um, regarding... Um, the uh, a computer that's based on the data rather than uh, on based on documents, which is also what Tim Berners-Lee is calling the semantic, the semantic web. web. Yeah. Um, 
my partner Evgenia, when she was des um, developing the Mapfy um, project in mm. response to your um, invitation, we talked a lot about it. And, and one of the things that is um, driving her is the idea of being able to go to this game and being able to find out everything there is that you could possibly know about coffee, in which mm. case it would fit into this idea of, well, basically of the semantic web. And she we discussed at length the idea of um, artificial intelligence within computers, which is presumably what Tim Berners-Lee would like to see um, happening with Web 3.0. Um, but she talked, um, my partner is uh, discussing the, the idea that artificial intelligence, it could be present us with a big danger. Is that something that you have also considered? Well, and it, it is something that has been spoken about a lot, isn't it? I believe uh, Stephen Hawking has spoken about it, <laughs> and um, and he has every right. To, that's not mocking him. That's just go. Uh, I think uh, he. I do know Stephen Hawking, and he likes it when I do that. That's what. Just <laughs> thought I should tell you that, uh, in case you thought that I was making fun of him. <laughs> um, yeah, of course there are dangers. Um, I sort of started following AI in the days of Marvin Minsky, who's considered the father of artificial intelligence, and. Um, he said some, some very wise things about it, and you know things have been set down. People are already talking about, um, you know, having a constitution for robots, um, and and uh, you know the prime directives of, of, of robotics have been established for 40 or 50 years, I think, haven't they? Uh, in terms of you know how, how deeply you can allow, you know, how how you have to program a, a, a robot not to do certain things. They must never ever harm a human, for example. That's deep in their programming, but how can we be sure that can't be somehow circumvented? It's very hard to say, but we're such a long way away from all that, which doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about it, quite the reverse. Um, I, the thing that most inspired me about the early days of, of uh, artificial intelligence was, was, a, was a, a simple and obvious point, and maybe one that would inspire you in, if you're programmers or if you're interested in developing things in any way, as in engineers even, of course, um, is he said, there's a there's a mistake we make, which is we call engineering solutions elegant and we call them economical. And we think that's a marvelous you know, compliment. So we look at a tripod, look at that, it's perfect. No, it isn't. You break one leg, it falls over. Go to nature, which has had millions of years to refine its engineering, you can break a dog's leg, it's a cruel and horrible thing to do, but you know, it can become broken, it still walks. They too, as long as they're not, you know, it can still hop, amazingly. You can pull feathers out of a bird until you've, you think you're going mad and it will still fly. You can break its wing and it can still fly. The point is, there's a lot of inbuilt redundancy. There's a, there's a lot you can do because, and this is the point he made for AI, what, what they all depend on are agencies, bundles, bundles of function. So a wing is a bundle of feathers, it's a bundle of things, a leg is a bundle of ligaments and, uh, and, and so on. And so they're very hard to destroy entirely. Whereas as you know, you go into a computer program and you, you turn one zero into a one, or one one into a zero, and the whole thing just falls over. And it's the same with a lot of things that human beings design. So they just fall over if you, if you just kick them. Um, whereas if you try and imagine, and computing power is allowing us now to do this, to grow things, to, to let them evolve, to take the lesson from nature. It's always the way that's going to work because the system that nature is, if you want to call it that, is one that has just tried and, and, and tried and tried over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. And we don't have hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, but we do have Peter Flops of, of, of processing power with which to be able to try and mimic in small ways, which is exciting, I think. Okay, the last question just here. Hello, Stephen. Um, Hello. Just a quick question. Going back to the uh, kind of thing about, I know recently you've spoken about oh, freedom of speech and et cetera, et cetera. And with the Your Fry project being about limitless imagination almost, um, w would you say there's something you're particularly interested in within the next few years or within the near future that you would really like to see within an area of freedom of expression and freedom of speech? Well, it's certainly an interesting point. I would be thrilled if um, people who come from cultures and societies in which freedom of 
speech is difficult were to try and involve themselves in something like this, which wouldn't be seen as a direct threat that could get them in, into trouble, it wouldn't get them uh, whipped in the town square, it wouldn't get them imprisoned for expressing themselves, but would allow them uh, to, to have full creative reign on things from, from, from their country. That's obviously important. Um, I mean, it's, I've been thinking a lot about this whole freedom of speech thing because people, I think, get a bit, con well, not confused, but uh, th there, are, there are differing views. With the Charlie Hebdo, I set my stand out and said, you know, that people should be free to offend, and I believe that. And, and people tweeted me and said, huh, I suppose we offended, you know, homosexuals. I said, well, fine, you can, you can write an offensive piece about homosexuals as far as I'm concerned, and I, I would have permission to write an offensive piece about you as a result and call you a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's how it goes. That's how it works. That's fine. But I also wrote a piece um, for Holocaust Memorial Day, which is tomorrow, I think, um, in which I talked about having met this extraordinary woman, Anita Lasker-Valfish, who is a survivor from Auschwitz, who was a cellist. Um, she played under the baton of Alma Rosa, who was uh, Mahler's niece, and um, incredible woman, very tough, very extraordinary. And we talked a lot, and, and the, the thing I sort of came away with, which is something I've thought about before, is for the Holocaust to have happened, and it's the same in, in Rwanda, there's the radio station there, the De Colline um, radio station, which for weeks broadcast, um, the, you know, that tutus were, were cockroaches kill the cockroaches, they're cockroaches. Um, no human except a psychopath can kill another human without some sense of remorse. And there aren't enough psychopaths in any given population to destroy another through genocide. So you have to do something to recruit the ordinary members of that population. And what you do is you dehumanize those that you wish to kill. And Streicher and Goebbels for a very long period in time um, described and showed, as it were, that the Jews were lice and rats and vermin. They were not human. They were subhuman. And if you grow up, you know, if you're five, six, seven years, eight years, maybe nine, ten years even, uh, of that, because it was 43 that uh, it started to be put in train and 44 and 45 that the, the Holocaust truly exploded in terms of the death camps. Um, so there were people who had had probably 12 years of indoctrination that Jews were not human. And so they could do things to them that really still absolutely chill the blood. Um, and so in order to guard against another Holocaust, we have to watch language. We have to watch those who use language and those who speak in such a way as to dehumanize other people. And that may sound, if I express it wrong, as if I'm if I'm recommending some sort of politically correct speech in which you're not allowed to do this and not allowed to be that. But what I'm recommending is more or less what we have, which is that you, you just don't allow people to incite hatred or to, to, to kill. Don't, you don't allow someone to say, kill the cockroaches. But that's not the same as banning people who draw cartoons or who, who mock. So it's a very delicate business. And, and, um, and Delicate nuances of this kind are not easily followed, especially when we have the, 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 the world of digital media around where people are going to, you know, possibly play with what they think may be legal, which may turn out at least to be very destructive and harmful to any given group of people, including Islamic people, of course. I mean, it's not just about protecting Jews, because I happen to be Jewish. Obviously, I have that memory from the family, but it, 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 if it should teach one anything, it's that it, it applies to us all. Mm. Okay, well, I, I feel that we're really just warming up, Stephen. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> but, but I'm afraid that is the, the, the end of the session. We went on a little bit longer because I think we started a little bit late. Um, but I hope you will agree with me. That was a fabulously interesting, insightful and entertaining hour with Mr. Fry. And please, could you uh, show him your appreciation by giving a round of applause. Thank you very much.